passage of Deuteronomy chapter 2, so if you will open your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2. I may be getting ready to shock and disappoint you when I read the passage for this morning and suggest that this passage is a perfect one to lead us into the Advent season. You know, the the Christmas music is already playing and some of you have already put your trees up. You know, won't a passage like this uh, spoil the season, ruin the mood of Christmas? Well, I guess that depends on what you think this Advent season is all about. This passage this morning establishes for us why we must have Advent, why we must have Christ, because it pictures the world desanitized. No sweet-smelling hay, no gently lowing cattle in a tidy little manger. Everything is not calm and bright. When we sanitize the world, into which Jesus was born so that it gives us the warm fuzzies for a few weeks, when we make the scene so sweet and peaceful and nice, we rob it of the degradation and the desperation and the violence that was the reality of it. Why would anyone long for Jesus, the Messiah, to come into a world already sweet-smelling and at peace? Why do we sing with longing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? It wouldn't make any sense. And why would the coming of the Lord cause us to sing joy to the world? The Lord has come. It wouldn't make any sense. Why would we need joy in our lives if our lives were already ones uh, of peace and sweet and already what they should be? Jesus coming to earth is not some sweet little add-on the celebration of which makes the world a nicer place for a few days. Jesus coming to earth is the most extreme act that he took on flesh and that he came himself to earth to rectify a situation that was desperate. That's what we need this morning as we come to the passage, Deuteronomy chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured, we carried off for ourselves. From Arior on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord, our God, gave us all of them. But in accordance with the command of the Lord, our God, you did not encroach on any of the land of the Amorites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok, nor that around the towns in the hills. Next we turned and went up along the road toward Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle at Edrai. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you and his whole army and his land. 
Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the sixty cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars. And there was also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and all the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now bless, as you promised, the reading and hearing of your word. Father, we need your spirit to make your truth plain to us. We need your spirit, Lord, to open our eyes so that we may see you and the truth and the light that surrounds you. And so we submit ourselves now to to you and to the teaching of your spirit and to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Look with me again, if you will, at verse 34. The people have just defeated King Sihon. And as we read, they took all of the towns and destroyed them. Men, women, and children. Now look, if you will, at chapter 3, verse 6. We read the same thing again. That the people of Israel completely destroyed King Og as they had done King Sihon. Destroying every city, men, women, and children. And so what a scene of violence uh, confronts us as we read this passage. How are we to understand a God who would command his people to a, a war of total destruction? Should not the grace and the mercy and compassion of God cover these people, the Canaanites? Let's think about that. You know, the, the universe, as you know, and everything in it belongs to God. Everything It's his. He created it. And we know that what God created was good. Everything that God created was good. And at the end of each day of creation, God looked at what he had created. And each day that he he saw that it was good, day one creation, God looked and saw that it was good. Day two creation, God looked at what he had created and he saw that it was good. Day three, day four, and right on down with each day of creation. It was good. When sin entered the world, it perverted the goodness of everything that God created. Nothing escaped the withering foulness of sin. Nothing. The earth, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, everything perverted by sin, but especially humanity. Those who alone in all of creation, only humans, humans alone created in the image of God, were marred and disfigured by sin. Those who God created to be in a close and intimate relationship with him instead became people who wanted nothing to do with God. People who rebelled against God and his authority in their lives. People who fought against God. People who even campaigned against God in their unrelenting drive to get others to deny God and to rebel against him as well. Such were the people over whom King Og and King Sihon ruled. They were people 
who perverted God's truth and twisted and mangled what God created to be beautiful into something ugly and perverse. I don't see too much point this morning in going into great detail about the perverseness of the Canaanites. Their temple prostitution, their perverted sexual practices, their violent rituals, their human sacrifice, including the sacrifice of their own children being thrown into the flames of the fire. One commentator called the Canaanite religion the most depraved religion known to man. And yet here were these people dwelling in the midst of God's creation, practicing and propagating a reprehensible behavior and saying, this, this is true worship. How long should God let that continue? How long should he allow them to keep practicing such evil? How long should he keep letting the infection of that evil spread? Which is more compassionate? To allow them to keep on sinning? Keep on sacrificing their children? Keep on degrading their bodies and getting others to do it? Or putting a stop to it? And and who deserves the compassion here? The people doing the evil, do they deserve it? Or, Or do those deserve it that they entice to join with them? People, they say, come and follow us leading people further and further and further away from the God of light and the God of truth. See, there comes a time when God gets to say, enough, enough of this indescribable sin. You know, you and I go to the beach and and we spend hours building a beautiful sandcastle and we get angry when some bratty kid comes running and kicking down our beautiful sandcastle, you know. Surely, surely. God is justified in his wrath against those who go running and kicking and sinning through the world he created. Jeremiah chapter 25 talks about the cup of the wrath of God. And I want you to turn there, if you will. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 554. The passage is Jeremiah 25. Turn there, if you will. And what we read in this passage concerns really all people. It concerns God's people, the people of Judah, and it concerns all the nations. It talks about God's wrath. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 25. And though the Lord has sent all his servants and prophets to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices. And you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what you have made, what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have provoked me with what you, your hands have made and you have brought harm to yourselves. And now down to verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. And now down in verse 30. Now... 
prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. See, a a point comes when the cup of God's wrath against sin gets full. When people pollute God's creation, when people spread their pollution like a cancer all around them, God gets to say, enough, stop, no more. God is allowed to cut out the cancer so that it cannot spread and destroy what's healthy. Listen, God knows. God knows how easy it is for us, for people, to sin. For even healthy people to be drawn into it. Remember what happened to Moses back in chapter 1? We read there. God commanded his people to go and take possession of the promised land because he was giving it to them. When God said go, the people said, no, let's first send some spies to go ahead of us into the land. And Moses thought that was a good idea. Moses, the man of great faith. Moses, the man through whom God had performed all of these mighty miracles. Moses, the man who knew that it was always God who always went before his people. That man, Moses, now thought it was a good idea to let the spies go ahead of the people. See what happened? The faithlessness of the people even infected Moses that easily. That's how quickly and easily sin can spread, even to the most faithful. And that's why you and I have to be vigilant over our lives. We've got to be vigilant over our lives, vigilant over our faith. And that's why it's a great mercy. It's a great compassion when when God acts to protect our faith that can be so weak. God knows this. And that's why he tells his people, as they enter into the promised land, not to leave any of the pagan nations living in the land. Because God is protecting Israel. This brand new baby nation, this tender plant of a nation. He's protecting him from the slugs of the other nations who would attach themselves to this tiny, tender new nation uh, and, and devour it and strip its leaves, strip it of the leaves of faith and trust and worship of the one and only true and living God. I want to fast forward a few centuries because God's people never obeyed him in this. They never fully drove out the people that God said, drive them out. They allowed these people to stay in the promised land. It was, to them, like getting most of the cancer out, but leaving only a few cells. Ah, what are a few cells going to hurt in an otherwise healthy nation? This is what happened. A man named Manasseh became king of Judah, the tribe and the nation from which Jesus will descend. Judah, the tribe of King David himself. And listen to what Manasseh did. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 50 Five years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the king of God's people. Following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshipped them. 
in both courts of the temple of the Lord. He built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Israel, of Jerusalem, astray, so that they did more evil. They did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That's what happens when sin is allowed to go unchecked. This man should have led his people in the worship of God. This man should have led his people to know God better and to love him more. But he didn't. Now let's get back to Deuteronomy and the Canaanites. This is what happens in our minds, I think. Since destruction did come upon the Canaanites, it's so easy for us in our minds to turn them into martyrs. Poor people, destroyed by God. And it's easy to turn God into the bad guy. I've heard it over and over and over. How could God, how could you serve a God who would do that? But we only protect them in our minds because we never met them. Because we were never influenced by them. Because we never had a son or we never had a daughter given over to temple prostitution. Because we never had a grandchild thrown into the fire as a living sacrifice. I went to see The Hunger Games last week, the new one. And I know it's fiction. But you can see pictured on the faces of the parents and the family members the pain when their child is selected to play in The Hunger Games because their child is being selected to be sacrificed. And we see that and we watch that And we get so angry and I can't wait for part three because I hope the bad guy that's requiring that is going to be wiped off the face of the earth because that's what we want for people like that. You know, it isn't as if the Canaanites were ignorant either. You heard the passages. They were smart enough to build cities, big cities, walled, well-defended, fortified cities. If the Canaanites were ignorant not knowing any better, if they were just innocents, then they might deserve our pity and one of our good old southern, well, bless their hearts. They didn't know any better. But they weren't innocents. And they weren't ignorant. They were intentional. They were intentionally evil. I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage. This is so important. It's Romans chapter 1. Please turn to Romans chapter 1. It's page 795 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. 
But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is the truth about all people of all time, the Canaanites included. This is not innocence on their part. It is intentionality from a people who don't like it God's way, from a people who do not want it God's way. It's arrogance. It's rebellion. It's nobody, nobody is going to tell me what to do. Listen again to verse 21. They knew God, but they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him. The Canaanites made a willing exchange. God, creator of the universe, all universe, everywhere, shouts that you are God. But we don't want you. We're going to exchange you for a God created in our own image. And so they made that exchange. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of images that they had made that looked like birds and animals and reptiles. And verse 24 gets at the real reason Here's the real reason for the exchange that they made and for the, for the exchange that every one of us makes. It's the sinful desires of their hearts. See, God's way is a good way. It's a way of peace and it's a way of blessing. But it comes with rules that must be followed to have that goodness and that peace and that blessing. And so when those rules become inconvenient... When they stand in the way of what people want, then people make that great exchange. The truth of God for a lie. The worship of God for the worship of idols. The glory of God for the glory of man. I've seen this exchange over and over again. I've seen this exchange in young adults who were raised in the church. You know, they they get out into the world. They get away from home. They get away from mom and dad, they get away from church, and they experience a bigger world. Where perhaps the world is not bigger, it's just that they have freedom in this big world that they have always known. And they begin to hang out with people who have different values than the Christian values that they grew up with. And those people have different lifestyles. And those people do different things. Things that look fun. Things that feel fun. Things that are fun, but things that are outside of those rules that God puts in place for us, for our protection, so that we can have a good life and an abundant life and a blessed life and a peaceful life and a fulfilled life. And so the exchange takes place. And the rationalization starts. And Johnny or Susie come home at Thanksgiving and they say, you know, Mom and Dad... Those professors have really opened my eyes to what's really true. I just don't believe in God anymore or this whole Christian thing. Now, in order to believe that, they have to listen to the professor with their eyes closed so that they cannot see the universe that everywhere declares the glory of God. Now, more than ever, 
the more science opens our eyes to the vastness of the universe of which we are just a speck, the more difficult it is to deny the eternal power and the spectacular glory of the God, not the force, but the God who designed and created it. Maybe Johnny and Susie don't believe anymore. But more likely, God has just become to them an inconvenient truth to us who occupy our little speck on this earth when God's truth interferes with what we want. And so I bet this, I bet if you ask Johnny or Susie, hey, how are you living your life right now? What choices are you making in the way you're living? You would find that their answer would not be biblical ones. And in order to justify that behavior to their own heart or their own mind, it's easier just to say, oh, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Young adults aren't the only ones. You know, when it's time for a midlife crisis believer to exchange a biblical lifestyle for an unbiblical one, it's just more convenient to say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. If believing prevents them from having what they really want. It's the exchange and all of us make this exchange every day in small ways or big ways. That's what sin is. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. You know, we are to to aim at the target that God has set for us. It's a target of holiness, but instead we point and we aim down toward this target because we like it better. And so we make that exchange. The Canaanites wanted what they wanted because they enjoyed the reprehensible things they did and they didn't want to stop. So we think, well, okay then, by the time of Jesus, come on, by the time of Jesus, surely the world had progressed. Surely the world wasn't as barbaric a place. It was a better place. Surely by now we can have a little bit of sweet-smelling hay. Come on, a little lowing cattle. It's time for that. A little silent, peaceful night. Because Herod ruled, right? And Herod should have been the bright, shining example of the best that humanity had to offer. He was physically strong, King Herod was. He was brave, much braver than the normal man. He was intelligent. He was articulate. He was politically savvy. He was the darling uh, of the court of Rome. The Caesars loved him. He was a brilliant architect, brilliant architect. The remains of some of his structures that he designed and engineered are still visible today, 2,000 years later. A brilliant man. Surely someone so gifted, someone so educated, someone so talented, someone so royal would be a good person, right? What was the reality of Caesar? He was so greedy for power that he became a man of jealousy and suspicion. And so desperate was he to keep his power that he had his own wife put to death. Purportedly, the only human being that he ever truly loved, she stood on his way so he had her put to death along with the two sons that he had had through this woman. Five days before his own death, he had a third son of his put to death. Jesus was born shortly before Herod died. By then, Herod was a sick old man. The historian Josephus describes him. He had a fever, Caesar did, an intolerable itching, of the whole skin. Now y'all will start doing this. Continuous pains in the intestines, tumors of the feet as in dropsy, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene of the privy parts. He suffered from asthma, 
limb convulsions, and foul breath. King Herod was in such pain at this point in his life that he once attempted suicide. And yet, some wise men, some wise men came to visit Herod, the sick old man who could probably no longer even walk. And they told Herod, hey, there is uh, one who has been born king of the Jews. Can you help us find him? Because we have come because we want to go and worship this newborn king of the Jews. Now, why would Herod care about another king being born at this point in his life? How much longer could he keep his throne anyway? And yet, Herod was so eaten up with jealousy and suspicion, and he was so twisted by sin. You know the story. He ordered all the baby boys, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem or its vicinity to be killed, in the hopes that he would kill just one, just Jesus, to keep Jesus from taking the throne from which death would remove him in a few months anyway. Perhaps the world in Jesus' day looked back on the ancient Canaanites and thought that they had come so far that the world was a better place. But Herod and the crazy Caesars that followed him disproved that theory. And so perhaps we look back on the Romans who look back on the Canaanites and we think, oh, we've come so far. The world is a better place, ready for some sweet-smelling hay. Now... Regardless of what history tells us, we always hope, we always hope that somehow this world is going to become a better place, apart from being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we will educate the world into being a sweet-smelling place. But education didn't seem to help very much in the 20th century, did it? When the first world countries of the world, not the third world countries that are so ignorant and uneducated, no, the first world countries of the world tore each other apart in war after war. Education and advancing technology didn't seem to make much difference in making the world a better place. It just helped us destroy one another more effectively. We sacrifice millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of unborn babies to legalized government stamp of approval abortion. Human trafficking, the sex slave trade, is at an all-time high. Shall we then pull out some sweet-smelling hay? I think not. What we need is not sweet-smelling hay to cover up the reality, what we need is a Savior. We need a Savior brave enough to come into a world as violent as ours. We need a Savior strong enough to defeat rebel hearts that fight against Him. Most of all, we need a Savior who is willing to pick up the cup of God's wrath against a sinful world and drink it. That's what we need. That's what you and I must have, or we must drink the cup of God's wrath alone because it's our sin, yours and mine, that helped fill that cup up. And when in His wrath, God rages against ugly, destructive sin, He will rage against us. He will rage against you and me unless, here's the good news, unless you and I are hidden in Christ, unless you and I are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, Unless His perfect righteousness shields us 
and protects us as it most certainly will. That's why we long for a Savior. And that's why we should celebrate at Christmas. Because we have such a Savior. We have a Savior who is brave. We have a Savior who is strong. We have a Savior who drank the cup that we were supposed to drink. And it wasn't easy for Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the last night of his life, he prayed before he went to the cross. He said, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Of course Jesus prayed that prayer. Of course he did. He had been with God from the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And as he prayed that that cup might pass from him, he was acutely aware of the devastation of sin, the violence and perversion of the human heart. Jesus had borne witness to men and women and children turning away from God and the destruction of the life that followed from that tragic exchange. And he knew full well the well-deserved wrath of God against sin. And he was about to drink that cup. The cup was full of the wrath of God so that the price of sin could be paid. So that you and I might come back to God. So that the battle between us and Him might cease. So that the sickness of sin might be healed and the scars of sin salved. Yes, this passage shows us how much we need Jesus to come and rescue us. How much I need Him to come. How much you need Him to come. That you must have Jesus. That Jesus is the only hope of the nation. That you long for the salvation that He brings. That he didn't come to rest in sweet-smelling hay in a tiny little stable with lowing cattle to be told, shh, sleep, sleep, sweet baby Jesus. Sleep in, in heavenly peace. No, he came to save sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news this morning that for those who will place their faith in Christ for salvation, for those who will put their hope, all of it, in him for salvation, for those who have made the exchange, who have exchanged uh, lies for the truth, we thank you that by placing our faith in Christ, there is forgiveness and there's healing. And Lord, we are protected. We are shielded. We can be at rest and at peace because we are covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that though we deserve your wrath for our sin, that we try to separate ourselves from the Canaanites and their evil, oh, I would never do that. I would never be that person. Lord, we are all sinful in our own right. And though we are people of sin, you so graciously pour out your mercy and compassion on us in Christ. And so we thank you for what you have done for us through him. We thank you that 
Lord Jesus, you came to be our brave and strong Savior, that you drank the cup so we wouldn't have to. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.